I want to set this up by saying, first of all, there's sort of a narrative, two narratives that I've run into in this world, in this culture. Um, one is that we are driven by emotion too much. Now, how many have heard that? Yeah. That seems to be something fairly consistent for a bunch of years now. People have said that. Um, it seems to have a bit of a resurgence. There's also this confusion about language around feeling. Like people say, I feel, when what they mean is I think. You know, I feel like, I feel like that person's wrong about what they just said. Well, you think that's what it is, right? But, it's, but we're confusing those terms. So some, some of that confusion also plays into this whole thing of um, feeling um, and talking about language of feeling a lot. All right, so there's feeling as something that uh, we're being driven by emotion. That's one narrative. What's the, the other narrative is that we're not. We're repressed. We're repress, repressing our emotions and not expressing those things. So that's the other narrative that we hear. And I wonder if there's a, a resolution between those two. Um, can, can, they, can they both be the same coin, just two sides? And um, so as the three of us were talking, we thought about this as, well, if you don't, if you repress those emotions that you're trying to stuff down, they still guide you and you can still be driven by those emotions, even though you're unaware that they are present. You've just repressed them. And so that's oftentimes what happens. So I'll just set that aside for now and just assume with me that that's, um, that's the theory we're working off of. Um, a little bit. And then um, what we have up here, and the reason why there's just three of us here, is because <clears throat> there's sort of three different ways of processing, generally, um, of processing life, information. And uh, there's head types, which tend to go immediately to the rationality space, because that's where we feel most comfortable. <laughs> so if we are triggered by something, like something uh, affects us emotionally, we just sort of repress the emotions and go right to rationalizing it. And it's a way of anticipating any sort of danger that might come our way or, you know, being prepared up here. It's all cerebral. It's all very much about like planning and thinking larger picture, bigger picture. We also tend to be more visionary. We have a sort of spatial awareness in the, uh, of concepts, how do concepts connect, okay? So head types tend to do that. I'm a head type. So, um, and then Jen is a heart type. But there's, um, I, just to clarify, if you don't know Jen, this is Jen. She's hanging out with us today. Um, and this is not a male-female thing. It's not that women are emotionally led and men are- Yeah, thank you for saying that. And I think it's, it's clear. It's just coincidence that the person representing the heart space today is going to be Jen. But typically, I mean, these are pretty spread across the board. Um, I just wanted to say that before we went into this You mean part. we don't want to emphasize stereotype here and kind of- <laughs> It, they never work. I mean, <laughs> not totally. So, so or are you, what were you going to? So, so uh, heart type. Um, heart types um, tend to function more from the emotional center. So, meaning they tend to be aware of other people's emotions. They kind of read that. That's the sort of the starting point for them is pick up on the emotional data around them. Now, for those of you, again, so this is what's funny. For those of you who, who are in any way, at first when you hear this stuff, you're like, come on, is that really real? Well, once you start talking to these different types of people, you're like, really, you think this way? Really, that's how, <laughs> and, and it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's how it works. So emotional types tend to read the room emotionally. What's going on here? What's the atmosphere? Um, it's all about connection, making sure that there's connection established between them. And so they'll function primarily from that center. Um, 
body types uh, tend to function more from the, uh, the center of, well, action, doing, um, and uh, using, you know, force control, controlling the, the, the environment, controlling themselves and then the environment, and, um, and making sure that they're in action, that they're in motion. Doing is, is primary. So um, it's not so much about the feeling, it's about let's get, let's get back to action and, and right action too. Um, all right, so this, this is the three of us right here. So we're gonna have a conversation about um, emotion and we're gonna connect it to the narrow path, believe it or not. How is that going to happen? Um, <clears throat> and I wanted to set it up by talking about, uh, again, uh, the, this whole series has been on uh, Matthew chapter five through seven, which is the, the Beatitudes. And um, in chapter seven, Jesus says, Matthew has uh, records this, uh, as Jesus saying that the road to life is narrow and the gate is small. And that the road uh, that, and that's the road that leads to life while the road that leads to destruction is wide and the, the gate is broad. Lots of people enter in group. It's groups that go in together. And so Jesus says there's two different roads and the one that leads to life He's, he has just talked about, even though we're in chapter seven, he has just talked about this way that leads to life. And, and he's done that through the Beatitudes. And one of the Beatitudes is Matthew chapter five, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Notice it doesn't say blessed are those who suck it up, for they shall be comforted. <laughs> Blessed are those who repress and control themselves, for they shall be comforted. It, it, it's actually blessed, and the word blessed here is the same word for happy. Happy are those who mourn. That's the contradiction, right? Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So as far as what we notice in scripture is there is no concept of repressing the, the emotion or the self in any sense. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's as you come into the fullness of your truth, truth being even the ugly stuff, that as you come to the truth of that, that then the journey begins, the journey of transformation and growth toward Christ, toward God begins. It's through truth. And so it's the fullness of who we are that we come together. And so blessed are those who mourn. And the Psalms, right? The Psalms are full. Have you read the Psalms? They're full of intense passion, emotion, and feeling, rich with it. Right? There's, no, there's no cleaning up in the Psalms. It's like, God, I wish you would just smash my enemy to pieces, like really crush them. That's emotion. That's feeling. It's not about this is really what I want you to do. It's this is what, what's going on internally. And I'm being honest about it. Right? So we have the Psalms. Um, Jesus is uh, one who weeps, right? Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the entire Bible. Uh, Jesus wept, right? This is in the face of Stoicism that preceded the time of Jesus and had great influence on Greek thought, which Greek thought had great influence on Roman thought. And so Rome was in power at the time of Jesus and was greatly influenced by Stoicism. And Stoicism was, it's best not to express that kind of intensity of emotion. It's best if we can somehow transcend that. 
because that's where emotion is where it gets messy and where you're likely to go wrong, right? And in the face of that, we have this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, right? And Jesus weeping. So that's the setup for this morning. So I want to dive into this conversation. And one thing to just set it up a little further is when you think about the wide road, I think of like the way everyone is going. The, what we talked about the very first week, there's safety in numbers. It's kind of the status quo. And status quo in our culture is you bring up the, the subject of emotions, and I'm up here pretty much representing the um, deny or repress my emotions group. Hey, for those out there. Um, but because the way that standard this works typically and what you don't see in scripture is, is the way it works typically in our culture, which is either we deny and repress our emotions or we are led by them and we just don't, we just can't control it. So we have to do, we have to act based on them. And then you have people who say, I've just been thinking and this just think, I think this is right. And I've really thought through this and I'm like, no, I can tell you're all just spinning emotionally and you're at it. And the, this is how you articulate it. Cause this is another form of denial. And I think what we're trying to do is the, the narrow way when it comes to the way we think being in the narrow way versus the narrow mind, the way we think is to actually think critically to be able to um, look at our own stuff and be honest about it. And the way to actually process emotion is to be honest and neither deny or repress or be controlled by. There's something in here. There is a third way of living that we want to try and get to and we want to try and step into, but it's really hard because what we're used to seeing and what we're used to experiencing, um, it's hard to even realize, oh, there's another way to not be like this. I don't actually have to live like this because I can tell you as someone who's denied and repressed, then there's times where it showed up and then it ran the show. And what I was always amazed by in the, in the scriptures is like the Psalms, he'll like pour it all out and it'll just be like this, almost like this vomiting of emotion. God, you've left me. Where are you? There's nothing left. But I'll, and then he comes around, but I'll trust you. And I'm like, are you faking the last part? Were you not really in the first part? Like what's going on here? Because, because it seems like they had accessed something else that was beyond what I had seen. Good. So I thought we'd start off by asking some questions. Uh, all three of us are going to um, talk about how we do emotion. And the first thing we're going to talk about is what were the messages we each heard regarding emotion while we were growing up? And so... Can I interject have, real quick? Oh, please do. <laughs> so if you got um, this handout on the way, Thank you, we yes. would love, um, you know, sometimes, at least for me, maybe this is just my emotional heart-centered self, but I find myself in other people's stories sometimes and it'll trigger things for me. So we just wanted to invite you as you're listening to us kind of process through this, like, ask these questions yourself, write down what comes to mind, or if you're a picture drawer or whatever you want to do, right? But um, engage with this material and think about this yourself. It's very much a collective process. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's good about, um, we switch it up. So uh, if you're visiting, usually I'm the one talking, I'm presenting, right? So this is a switch up right here. 
um, because we figured that also one of the things about dialogue like this is it allows you to sort of take time to identify with one of the three of us, right? And then to spend time writing as Jen just, just said. So thank you for, for um, saying that. Um, so let's start with Jim. Uh, body type is what message did you receive about emotions when you were growing up? Uh, same message I received about everything, which is it doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what you do. You are what you do. Um, and emotions are something to be controlled because they're not to be trusted. Uh, that was the general message. And so if they're not to be trusted, they're not to be taken seriously. And so the result was to be controlled, not even really to be acknowledged, not even really to be um, honored. They were just it was very stoic, I think, influenced. I think um, the theology or the way of thinking about God and scripture and all of that for uh, my dad was um, was very influenced by that thinking, that stoicism of, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. So I, I got the boys don't cry thing, you know, um, toughen up. Like the, the motto is life is suck. Life sucks, you know, suck it up, deal with it be strong and move on. And, you know, a lot of us received that message. And there were, there were times when that felt like a gift because I was able to push through certain things that were really hard where other people weren't. Um, but then in the long run, I saw also some of the backfire of some of those things where those, those things come to bite you around because um, control wasn't the right word and it wasn't the right goal. And I see now kind of what they were trying to get at, but I also see how it missed the mark. But, you know, we'll get to that later. <laughs> well, um, I have two kind of key memories um, growing up. And one is um, when I was five, probably around five, I remember <laughs> um, struggling to get this undershirt on and like somehow I got my hands all like tangled up in this undershirt my my doors open and my I was so utterly frustrated like just beyond frustrated that I could not figure out how to get this on and I remember my dad who was at the time a mental health therapist um, and has always kind of operated um, in these fields and worked a lot with emotions you know he he um he said Jen Jen, what's the matter? And he came in and he helped me sort out this darn undershirt. And he said, you know, we all get frustrated sometimes. You just got to ask for help. <laughs> and this really sticks out in my mind as kind of like a core memory of like, ask for help. <laughs> like, this is pretty big. And so that, that was like a really healthy message. And then I remember um, when I was 11, and I'm sure I was just feeling all the feels. I don't even remember what prompted this, but I remember again, um, kind of having this conversation with him where he said, Jen, you got to deal with your emotions, <laughs> you know? Um, and if you don't, it's like a can of soda, you know, something will happen and you shake that up. Something else will happen, shake it up, shake it up. And then you go to open it, one little thing happens and it explodes out, right? It explodes. So we've got to deal with our emotions, you know? So these were two very healthy messages that I received. And then at the same time, I think there was also this message of, um, uh, obedience trumps emotion, which can be valid. Like that still can be a good message, but a respect trumps emotion. And um, in the evangelical community, there was kind of this um, greater message of like, 
total depravity, right? Like, <laughs> um, which, you know, I, I can get into this further later on, but you know, it's kind of this message of like, not so much emotion being evil, but like, I'm bad, you know, right? Like this message of like, this is bad. What do I do with this? This is bad. Which for me ended up leading to like kind of hiding that. Um, and, and this kind of feeling of like, okay, if you're having a hard time right now, you go in your room, you have that hard time. And then when you're ready to be happy and be nice, you can come out again, you know, like that kind of a message. Um, and so I think I got a little bit of both growing up, quite honestly. Mm. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it's what we want to be careful in saying all of this is some of you have uh, are parents and have said some of those things to your kids and hearing this, you're going to go, oh, what trauma did I cause my kids? You know, it's like, um, but but don't don't um, don't carry that because what we're talking about is not so much that the things that were said were terrible. Some things that were that were said now we know don't really help and don't work. We're not looking to cast blame or put anybody down. That's not the way forward. The way forward is to recognize that you have something to do that you can do now. So no playing victimization kind of stuff. That doesn't work. We actually recognize yes, there's some things that were done that were not helpful. Some things that were very harmful. But now I have the power to change my life. And so what do I do about that? Um, so the message I received as a kid was, um, it didn't come so much with words, although there were plenty of words. There are plenty of things that were said. Um, my, uh, neither one of my parents were very emotional or um, super affectionate. It was sort of, one was definitely not affectionate at all. And the other one was occasionally affectionate. Um, but uh, the message I received was, um, I remember um, <laughs> my parents used to bounce around from church to church. They wouldn't stay anywhere for, for more than like a year or two. And so um, I had just started in this um, Sunday school class that I loved because I was making connections with friends, with people. And I really liked it. And I wanted to be, hang out with these kids. And I had also at uh, 10 years old fallen in love with this girl that was in that, uh, in, in that church. And I was like, oh man, you know, this is awesome. I can't wait to see her. And my parents on a whim just decide we're gone. So I had been, I had watched, uh, uh, some, uh, watched one of the uh, uh, Brady Bunch um, uh, shows where one of them, I can't even remember who it was, but didn't eat for like a day because they were hurt by something. And the parents came and said, oh, why didn't you tell us? We would have helped. And, and I thought, maybe that'll work with my parents. <laughs> so I tried that, and there was not even a hint of reaction or response. They were like, well, you don't want to eat. Oh, well, that's your problem. Yeah, you, know, you want to be, be down? That's your problem. And there was zero response. And that characterized much of my experience growing up was not so much of a response in terms of affection or, uh, uh, or empathy and much more of a um, you're on your own sort of thing. So I just said, well, I guess that's what it is. Um, I also remember um, uh, it getting um, uh, crying a lot. So I have to edit some things out just because... Um, my dad's still around, so <laughs> um, I want to be careful. I, I respect and honor him. But um, there were some things that I would, I would cry because of certain punishments. And I remember that there was never any, any response of any kind of empathy. And I realized crying does not work, and I shut it off. And at a young age, I decided it was an inner vow I made. I will never cry again. And I didn't. And, and no matter what was done to me, I turned it. And the mechanism I used was to begin laughing 
And so I laughed a lot. So I'd be like, <laughs> meanwhile, it was like a knife to the heart, right? So um, that's the mechanism I use. So that's, uh, that's sort of the um, three, I guess, three different experiences and messages we received. Um, so let's talk about what did we do as a result with the emotions? So Jim, you have oh, the mic. Oh boy, I'm gonna start this one. Oh God. Oh boy, okay. So I internalized certain messages and I learned to be strong. That was the, that was the thing. And I kind of took it to an extreme, um, went into MMA fighting and, and just wanted to be, you know, wanted to handle it. But internally, uh, you still have all these emotions that come up at different point in times. And so I, I learned that the only way to kind of deal with certain things is to make a decision or a vow at a certain moment and be like, I'm not going to let that or I'm not going to let you affect me. And basically any sense of betrayal or anything that you said, if you said certain things, I could like cut off my heart to you, or at least I thought I could. And that was, ended up being the problem is because you actually can't. It's, it's in there and you can't do anything about it. And um, it's, it's hard because sometimes you do have to share parent stories about your parents and you don't want to like dishonor them, but I still have to like own my story. And this is one that I'm, I'm very aware of and present to. And um, my dad had had a brain tumor. And I think when he was in his early twenties, he actually had a seizure on my parents' honeymoon and um, had a 3% chance of living, survived, came out of it, but was kind of somewhat disabled through my whole life. And I think there was also a, um, probably a cap um, just neurologically to certain like emotional sensitivities or communication or ability to see new things and, and not even aware of his own disappointments because he had wanted to pastor and do music. And, mm. and I remember being in the library one, one day and he's asking me kind of, what do I want to do with my life? And I had picked up the guitar like six months before and I was like four hours a day just playing. I'd get home and I would just play. Like this is, I was like, oh my goodness, I, this is my thing. Like I can, whatever, it, my life makes sense when I hold this thing. And I'm actually able to access this thing which I've been told to shut off. I was able to ac access something in a safe way, you know, and I say, I want I wanted to do music. And he just kind of was like, well, well, that probably won't work out. Like, what would be your backup plan? And I remember thinking in that moment, you never get to have an opinion about my life again. It was that fast. And I shut it off and it never opened again. And it was a very strange way to like go through the rest of high school and stuff like that with that kind of like decision. And any time that there would be an opinion that came up about my life, because I was actually like living my life well. Other people around me, like they saw other friends and stuff who was like falling apart or making terrible decisions. But I knew exactly what I was doing and I made all my decisions. Like I was like living on my own pretty much in 10th grade. I had my own car, my own job, and I just like did my own thing. And um, this, but this sort of message or this, this decision that I made that I will cut off my heart if I don't feel safe there was always something in the back of my mind haunting me. And one of the best things I ever did though in my life is I, I chose, I went to like older men throughout my whole life and like 
would learn from them or be mentored by them. And, and there was an aspect of fathering who uh, were looking for men who would speak the father's blessing um, into the decisions and who I felt like they actually see me. They actually can tell who I am. And uh, there's this one guy, Jeff, who just did this in, in an incredible way. He's the guy who built that guitar I'm playing. Um, uh, the thing my dad said I wouldn't do. And I was just talking to him on the phone this week. And um, shortly before he came here, he took me to this, went away to this um, retreat, this men's retreat thing. And, and there's this point at the end in which he's like washing my feet. And when he did, I freaking lost it. I mean, I lost it. I was like weeping. And um, when I was, I realized like that was the story that I was thinking of. I was thinking of the story of my dad and I in the library. And it's funny, I didn't even tell Jeff that until this week on the phone with him. Um, and I was like, why did this story come up? Uh, apparently I'm supposed to speak it on Sunday, which I hate because now I'm being vulnerable again. And like, it's all that space. But um, there's the thing is like, there's, in there, like God continued to father me and bless me and open those doors up. And I think if anything, I want to encourage this, like there's, there's doors that God wants to open again. Um, there's things that he wants to like heal that space in you, you know, and, and that has been happening. Um, and, and God is faithful to provide the community that will, will father you and speak into like that. And now I'm like, I can access that and I'm still strong. Like, I am all of these things, and that is good. Oh, the feeler in me. <laughs> oh, thanks for sharing. Um, so um, I think, sorry, sorry. Um, I, well, I apologize a lot, apparently, for my emotions. I'm learning this. Um, sorry, sorry. Um, no, I, um, so, so kind of going on uh, this idea of um, like total depravity and this message of like, um, I, I, have the, I had this moment in my 20s where I, um, I remember we had just, um, as I was leading worship at this church um, and I, we had just done like this massive joint worship service and um, I had kind of like come into myself a little bit and um, I was really feeling uh, kind of proud of myself. Um, and, um, but I remember after this big joint worship service and kind of being on this adrenaline high, going back to this empty church and writing this song. And the lyrics were, if the truth be told, there's not much in me to be proud of. When my heart is exposed, I realize the only good in me is you, referring to the Lord. And there is some truth in that, but I look back on that now and um, I realize like how much of my kind of like um, what I consider to be negative emotions, like pride or um, uh, anything, jealousy, anything that would come up that um, wasn't what I kind of consider to be good or spiritual, um, there was a lot of shame um, and there was a lot of um, kind of hiding, hiding that. So my 20s, I started really struggling with depression and anxiety. And I remember, um, you know, I'm struggling with this. And then at the same time, I'm working at this church. And I remember like putting up... Um, 
like these divisions of like feeling these things intensely, but not, but feeling like there had to be like this public image of Jen and then this private image of Jen and not knowing how to really work through these difficult emotions in a healthy way, you know? Um, and um, I think a lot of my 20s were kind of spent um, in that space. And um, I think still, I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but um, yeah, I think, and maybe Donna, you know, you brought up a good point, right? So there's definitely sometimes something to like birth order or whatever, you know, so like being the oldest, being a bit of a perfectionist too, is like this desire to like be seen as good and this desire to, I'm a two with the one wing. <laughs> so, right, this desire to be perceived like image was is a big thing, right? And, um, and not really knowing like, I'm feeling these intense emotions, but how do I really work through this in a healthy way? And so I think a lot of times um, that ended up either being sorted through privately um, in a way that wasn't very vulnerable or um, or um, blame was often, I think, another avenue for me. Um, yeah, th those are my two thoughts right now. Um, yeah, for, so just, I, I already said part of it, so just 30 seconds. Um, for me, it was um, learning to repress, continue to repress emotion and laugh. So I laugh in uncomfortable situations. I laugh at funerals. I, um, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's just, it's the most inappropriate thing. So someone's telling me something really painful and I'm uncomfortable, or if, particularly if I'm being, when someone's saying something painful, I, um, uh, well, this is now. Before, it would be I would, I would look to quickly turn that conversation to something positive, right? Because that, that dark space is like terrifying to me. I want to run from that. So if there was a conflict of any kind, I would start to find myself giggling or finding things that were funny going through my head. Like weird ways that just were inappropriate. And I never trusted them because I knew they were inappropriate. And I would say something and Patty would go, whack, you know, like... <laughs> what are you thinking? Like, that is terrible. So I, I just decided at that point, like, don't trust whatever is going to come immediately to my head. But that's because my emotions were not really integrated. They were functioning in a weird way. I'd repress them and they were coming out sideways. They were trying to make their way out. And so I would think of something stupid or funny to say at the wrong times. Um, and so that's a lot of that's some of what would happen. The others would just be so more darker, just like, you know, I'd find myself sometimes going into depression because, uh, and I didn't know why. I had no understanding why depression would hit me at random times. And, um, and I would try to buoy myself and buoy myself and I couldn't. And I would, but to other people, I'm functional because I tend to be upbeat and optimistic. So my depression looks like someone else's average. But those who know me were like, uh-uh, something's wrong with you. Um, you're in a dark place. I was like, yeah, well, I am. Um, so, but I don't know why. And uh, later on, I discovered, yes, there are reasons why. And that's what we want to kind of want to talk about in closing is uh, how are we growing in that emotional space? And uh, what are some things we're learning? And so, um, so while I'm still talking, I'll just continue on that. For me, what I began to learn to do was to, to, to learn different life hacks. There were sort of emotional life hacks. When you do this, 
recognize that it's a it's it's your way of avoiding something and that gives me a chance to then tune into what i am actually avoiding so recently as recently as this past week i realized that i was laughing again at things so while driving somebody did something to really get under my skin and cut me off or i forget what it was and um and i started i went i started laughing And I'm like, no, 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 Joel, you know better. That's your anger. Now press in more deeply. You know, that's, that's because of, a, of some other things that you've allowed and not dealt with this past week. You've just sort of like brushed it away because you didn't want to deal with the emotion. So it's like, oh, yeah, 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 okay. So tune back into that. Um, and so the process now is to allow the emotion, whatever that emotion is, that's being masked by other things like anxiety or anger for me. Those are the two kind of common experiences emotionally. And to just um, press into the deeper one and to say it because at first I don't feel it. So I, I, I had to learn that the appropriate reaction to certain things is sadness, but I didn't feel sad. So now I start saying I'm sad. And when I started saying that over and over again at the right times, the emotion started following. And I felt it. And then I would start to cry and go, whoa, where'd this come from? Right? Like I would have never had this before, but that's because that's the appropriate response. And now instead of having this backlog of unprocessed emotion that is leaking out in all kinds of antisocial ways, now I'm present to people emotionally. And when someone shares something that's sad, I tear up with them and I stay present to the pain. Now, in my mind, I'm saying, run like hell, run like hell, run like hell. But in my but in the rest of me says, no, you know better than that. Stay present, stay present, because that's not going to kill you. That's actually going to bring you life. So now it's I'm able to be more integrated and feel more of who I really am. And with that, surprisingly, I feel deeply connected to God in ways I never imagined, because now I can love God from my whole self and not from just my head. I can love God from my heart as well. Oh, that's deep. Um, I think for me uh, in this space and, you know, just to kind of be vulnerable, like this is still um, very much in, very much in process. <laughs> like you gave an example from this week. I'll give an example from this weekend. Um, <laughs> oh, one up me. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, like uh, for me right now, um, I I brought my handy, this is like where my family is at and we're like, we're all kind of in this space. I don't know if anyone has ever seen that movie Inside Out, but um, this is something we're working on with my son who isn't here today. So I am going to talk about this in an honoring way to him. But, um, you know, we're all in my family, we're all kind of working on this, of um, this idea of zones of regulation and figuring out um, what are we feeling right now, naming what we're feeling, um, putting language around that, right? And uh, which... I've just recently learned is like when you actually start to speak it out and you put language around your emotions, that's a huge step in the right direction because you're bringing it into the prefrontal cortex of your brain, right? And so it's um, recognizing that and giving you more, um, for lack of a better word, control, um, but in a healthy way, control in a good way, right? So as a parent, like we all talked about our, our early experiences and it's so interesting for me as a parent, like wanting, I mean, Jolie and I were just talking about this, you know, wanting so much for my son and my daughter too, who's 
two years old and like feeling all the feels right now to have the freedom to really feel and experience those negative emotions. Oh, you're feeling angry. That's okay. You can feel angry. You can feel sad. You can't treat me badly when you feel angry. You can't hit mama when you're angry, but it's okay to feel angry, right? And then for me personally right now, I've been doing this uh, spiritual discipline over the past four years that has really been transformative for me. Um, And I won't get into the whole process, but it's basically a journaling process. And one of the key steps is hearing God say, I love to be with you. I'm glad to be with you in this right now. And I have so much compassion for your weaknesses. I treat your weaknesses tenderly. And hearing that message from God, that gets me every time. Oh, Jen, you're feeling angry right now. Oh, Jen, you feel overwhelmed, right? I love to be with you in that moment of overwhelm. I love to be with you in this. Oh, and so for me and for my family right now, it's it's actually looking like a lot of a lot of I'm sorry's, a lot of do-overs, a lot of, it's really kind of messy right now, I'll tell you. In my marriage, it's a bit messy. In my, with my kids, it's messy. Um, and it's, it's a lot of learning to do these do-overs. Oh, that's not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to react out of that emotion. Can I try that again? I really want to be respectful to you right now. Um, it's, it's messy. It is by no means um, all figured out, but it's acknowledging the feeling, what it really is, acknowledging what I usually do or have done in that space. Oh, I'm, I'm blaming you because I feel overwhelmed and upset. And here's the truth, acknowledging the truth and being able to operate out of that truthful space. So not ignoring those emotions, but learning how to regulate them in a healthy way. That's, that's it for me right now. Mm. You know, it's funny, I- as I was telling my story, I know some people are like, okay, cool, you know, and then some people would get, uh, would like tear up and be able to empathize with the story and others, I probably made you feel really uncomfortable. Um, and I probably would have felt really uncomfortable if I was hearing the story, uh, especially not too long ago, because the thing I realized and the lessons sort of that I learned is the cost of shutting down the emotions, the cost of this controlling is a lack of empathy. And it's very strange because since the message was control your emotions, when my daughter gets emotional, I want to control her. That's the consequence. That's the thing I'm having to like unlearn at my age, as opposed to like getting this kind of right at the beginning but here's, here's the thing is like, I haven't totally created the picture, but I think the point we're supposed to get to is not where we're controlling our emotions, but where we are in regulation. And there's a difference between emotional control and emotional regulation. Regulation includes acceptance. Regulation includes, yes, this is part of me. Regulation includes permission, but not ownership. There's a difference between you belong here, but you don't get to drive. You are, as Elizabeth Gilbert says, you are riding in the car, but you don't get to change the radio. You don't get to change the heat. You don't get to drive. You don't get to derail us. But you certainly belong, and we need you to be here. And, I'm, and I think that's the whole thing that I'm learning and I'm including. Like in all of these different interactions, 
um, as I struggle and stuff comes up that makes me, anger is always very accessible. <laughs> and, but the problem is I got to a point where I started realizing if I wasn't angry, I felt exhausted. Not, that's not great. But to actually include, oh, like, this is what I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling out of control. I'm feeling, okay, this belongs. And if I'm actually going to walk the narrow path, I'm not going to, like, fall off and just default with the crowd of, like, I'm angry about everything because there's so much injustice and post it all over Facebook. I'm not going to just, like, erupt at, at someone who's, who's driving down, who's someone who says something. I'm going to actually be able to admit that I am hurt when you told me that, you don't want to be in relationship. Like whatever the case may be, I think it in, it's this whole include, honor, transcend, and move forward. Because I think ultimately what, it, what we do is we just, we do, we bring it to God and we, like Jen was saying, like understand like, like you are with me in this space. God, you are with me in whatever I'm feeling, whatever I'm experiencing. And ultimately it's, it's information, it's data that you've put in our system. Um, we, we've quoted that before. It's emotions are data, not directions. It's data that I need, but it's not telling me what to do, when to do it. Um, and honestly, I can't even honor them if I'm letting them be in that space instead of being like, God, where are you in this space? And sometimes that's my prayer. Like, God, why did you give me this emotion? I do not want this. This is not a gift. This is a problem that I need to solve. And it's like, maybe not. The parts of yourself that you hate and that you repress is what you're going to hate and repress in other people. Uh, the more I, the, I'm telling you, the more I live, the more I work with people, hundreds of people, it's the same thing over and over again. It always leads back to this. The thing that you hate in someone else, it's because you hate it in you. You haven't received yourself yet. This concept in the, in the church world, and I am in the church world, so I'm speaking from within it, not as a critic from outside. But the thing that we have done in the church world that's been so harmful is to, is to, is to tell people that certain parts of them are wrong. You're bad. You're wrong. You're just like you were saying about the, de, the, the total depravity. Look at, look at the fruit of these teachings. Mm. D don't try to the rationality because trust me, people who think they're rational, mm. like head types, trust us. That's not rational. Mm. Like we know rationality mm. and we look at stuff. We'll go, no, that's not rational. Mm. Like I know what you're trying to say, but it doesn't connect. It doesn't make sense. So we can argue all day long about whether the doctrine is, is biblical or not biblical. The point is, look at the, look at the fruit of it. Mm -hmm. What's it doing in your life and in the lives of other people? Mm -hmm. And when you're yourself a very angry person, but you get up on Sunday morning and you preach a certain message and you preach it with all this anger, and then you go home and you're still angry and you treat your kids a certain way and they become hurt by that, that is telling, very telling, there's dark fruit there, right? And so when I started seeing this in my life, you know, five years ago, and the way I was treating Patty and AJ, that really troubled me a lot because the question kept nagging me. Who are you at home and what is it like at home? Not what's on stage on Sunday morning. What's it like at home? Yeah. And that's when I said, oh man, I got to change. Not with shame or guilt. What it became was something I needed to become aware of was 
I'm not dealing with something in here and it, regardless of how much I'm repressing it, it is having effect on other people. The parts I hate about me, I'm turning it out onto AJ and Patty. And I'm turning it out onto people that I love in church. And, um, and so that became a huge turning point for me. So what you hate in yourself and repress in yourself, you will hate and repress in the world around you. Um, so it's deep and it's powerful and it needs to be you know, processed, but it's not something that we should ever deal with shame or guilt or beat ourselves up. I always tell people, shame won't get you anywhere. Try it. I've tried it. I tried it for years. It doesn't work. It won't change you. What it'll do is behaviorally, it'll modify you slightly, but you can change from one addiction and find yourself in another one. In the past, in the church world, I know hundreds of pastors in this area and thousands of Christians in this area because I grew up here. I can tell you of people who left the drug world and entered the ministerial world, and I can tell you they switched addictions. They didn't change. They switched addictions. And then they spun out. And as we could have all predicted, they ended right back up in drugs again. Because you don't deal with what's really the cause, the internal emotional world. It leaks out. It manifests in other ways. So, we have, so we're talking about inner transformation. By the way, when we say this too, as we transition into worship and, and wrap up, because we've been going for a while, is, um, is to think about, and thank you, both of you. I mean, you guys did wonderful. Um, really, really helpful. Um, but as we transition out, I think I want to uh, play off of something Jen said in terms of um, where she's at, the vulnerability and the honesty of where we all are, because none of us have arrived. I've been saying this to a lot of my clients, and it's clicking for them, and they're going, that makes a ton of sense. And that is this. You can't, you, this is, transformation's not a performance. Transformation is not a performance. You don't perform transformed. In the church world, we show up transformed. How are you? I'm doing great. Too blessed to be stressed, brother. <laughs> you know, it's all these one-liners that we've all learned, and we come off with this image, and the image <clears throat> protects us, right, from what we know is true. And so we have this performance. Transformation, the way, the narrow path is not a performance. It's a lived experience. In other words, it's a practice. You do, and then you know. So we're trying some things and we're, and we're learning. Ooh, that didn't work. Time to change. Without shame, like, oh yeah, sorry, that didn't work. I'm so sorry. Let's pivot. Let's try something different. But we keep working at it and we keep doing our best. And then we stumble on these incredible insights in these incredible transformational practices. And so we keep going and keep going. Transformation, it's the way, the narrow path. It's a path, it's a journey. It's not a destination. So, and another way to say it, it's a practice, not a performance. Um, and, uh, and that's what gives us the freedom to just be truthful. So wherever you are, wherever you are, you're part of us and you're welcome to journey with us in truth because there's no shame in that. But we invite you to sort of come out of the hiddenness and just say, okay, can I be truthful about my emotions as I become more aware of them? Jen is doing the benediction. Awesome. Okay. This is called Prophets of a Future Not Our Own by um, a man named Oscar, Archbishop Oscar Romero. Take it in. It's a smidge long, but close your eyes. Breathe this one in. 
This for me really encapsulates what the narrow path is about. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. But this is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there's a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end result, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. So I pray as we do the emotional work this week, that would be true. We don't have to fix it all. We're going to start, and we're going to trust the master builder to do the rest. Amen.